just to look chapter 23 and I'm going to read from verse 32 just a short passage and we read that two other men both criminals were also led out with him to be executed when they came to the place called the skull there they crucified him along with the criminals one on his right the other on his left Jesus said father forgive them for they do not know what they are doing and they divided up his clothes by casting lots the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him they said he saved others let him save himself if he is the Christ of God the chosen one the soldiers also came up and mocked him they offered him wine vinegar and said if you are the king of the Jews save yourself there was a written notice above him which read this is the king of the Jews let's just come and pray father we come and ask now that that you take your word and that you will give us understanding that so many who were involved that day at the crucifixion of Jesus, they had no idea. They did not know what they're doing. But Lord, may we know you tonight. And may we know what you've done for us. And may we know what you're calling us to do and to be in response. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, we often say, don't we, about young people, that they like to run with the crowd, that they like to be part of the kind of in-group that they're often susceptible to the herd mentality, you know, wanting to feel that they've got a secure place within the peer group. So usually, we say they like going to the same places as their friends, listening maybe to the same music, watching the same films, and they definitely like wearing the same clothes, the right clothes that their friends are wearing. They like to do that. An example, young people seem to love wearing clothes with certain labels on them and as i've said to some of my friends on a number of occasions there are three of those labels in particular that intrigue me hackett fat face and duffer <laughs> so if you wear the right combination of items from these manufacturers ranges it seems to me that you'd be able to wear say a t-shirt a jumper and maybe a fleece on top that would read, Hackett Fat Face Duffer. Now I have to say that when I was 17 or 18 years old, I could not have imagined ever there being a day when somebody would voluntarily choose to wear clothes with those names emblazoned right across them. Hackett. Anyway, okay. Maybe in other countries they don't get it, but anyway. But we who are older, though, we who consider ourselves to be a bit more sophisticated and adult, we like to think we're a bit beyond that, don't we? Well, don't kid yourself on. No matter what our age, we like to fit in with our peer group. It's maybe a bit more subtle, but it can also be a fair bit more dangerous. For you see, young people, their conformity often is around things that are a bit more superficial, that are around you know, things like style and look, and appearance and young people because they're young and because they know they've got things to learn as they go on in life are often not always not all of them but often more open 
and more ready to change and to embrace different things, more willing to change their minds. But you see, the way that older people tend to fit in with, with one another is in terms of attitudes and mindset and behaviour. We like people to think like we do, to value the things that we value and to behave as we do. And once we're that bit older, we begin to think, many of us, you know, that we've got things now all sewn up. Our worldview becomes more and more fixed and it can become incredibly difficult to open our minds up to new things, to have our minds changed, to have our vision and perspective on life expanded. Now, I want you to keep that, that thought there in the back of your mind as we move to do just an, an overview, in a way, of the cross of Jesus here. Looking at the people who were there at some of the events that took place, but all of this in the context of those incredible words of Jesus from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So first, let's look then at the general situation, at some of the characters involved, some of the attitudes that we see around the cross of Christ. And on the whole, it was a mixture, ranging from almost the delirious joy of the Jewish hierarchy, who thought that at last they'd nullified the threat of this young teacher who'd been such a thorn in their flesh, to the abject despair of the disciples of Jesus whose master had so cruelly been taken from them. And as for the Jewish rulers, well, they indeed had felt threatened by the teaching of Jesus. By the fact that he seemed to stress first faith and love rather than the obedience to the law that for them was their all in all. And then he went to talk, on to talk about the priority of justice for the poor and the underprivileged in society. Well, you see, for them... That was a direct threat to their place of privilege. But it wasn't only the teaching of Jesus that made them feel threatened. They also felt threatened by the person of Jesus. Because he had an authority about him. And he had a way of connecting with people that made them feel inferior and distinctly uneasy. And the greatest fear was that he would claim to be the Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer of Israel, a privilege that, in fact, the crowd had forced upon him as he entered Jerusalem, and they threw palm leaves before him, and they called out their hosannas. But you see, for them, Jesus, as the Messiah, just didn't fit in, either with their narrow understanding of the Bible or with their selfish desires for the future. For you see, their expectation, their hope, was for a Messiah of worldly power. For a Messiah who by force of arms would set Israel free. And who in the process would give them their heart's desire. More power. More influence. More of this world's wealth. That's the kind of Messiah they wanted. And they certainly didn't want a Messiah who went around talking about faith and love and sacrifice and giving and caring. So for them, you see, to at last have Jesus in their hands, 
for them to begin to influence and determine his fate and his future. Well, you can only imagine the pleasure that brought them. And as for the disciples, well, their reaction to the cross would make you think that they'd never heard Jesus speak of the resurrection, which he had on a number of occasions during his ministry. But for them, what the cross meant was their master's death and that the hope that they'd had for the future, all was gone. They thought that he might be their Messiah and maybe a very different Messiah from that which they'd anticipated and the rest of Israel had hoped for. Yes, but they began to hope. Maybe an even more wonderful and more glorious Messiah because of that. But now it seemed as if this just could not be so anymore. And as for the Romans, well, it's difficult to be precise about their feelings around the cross of Jesus. But probably the reaction of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, is our best indicator. Because we know that he didn't want to sacrifice Jesus to death. He knew that Jesus had committed no crime worthy of death. But he didn't feel strongly enough about this, that he was prepared to do something. Not if that might mean putting his own neck on the line, which is what was hinted at by that Jewish hierarchy when they said, what would Caesar think if he found out that you'd released a man who claimed to be king and who posed a threat to his authority? And so we're told here, verse 25, that he surrendered Jesus to their will. So, interested then, the Romans, but not unduly Concerned. I think that maybe sums up best, most accurately, their attitude to Christ. But what about the crowd? What about the, the ordinary men and women of Jerusalem who gathered there around that cross? Well, they may well be, I think, the most tragic group of all. For some of them, perhaps many of them, had heard Jesus' teaching and had maybe even seen some of his mighty, miraculous works. They'd perhaps been among those who'd stood and cheered and shouted Jesus' praises as he rode in to Jerusalem. But you see here, when Jesus is no longer the flavor of the month, well, these people want to be found among the winners now, not the losers. And so they'd called out, crucify him, crucify him. And then they stood there. And watched as he hung and died. But you see, for all these different groups, the Jewish rulers who saw Jesus as a dangerous threat and rebel now destroyed, the Romans who saw him as an interesting curiosity but not worth too much bother, and the crowd who didn't seem to really think all that much and who were only interested in being in the right side, which for them meant the winning side, not the side of right and truth. For all of these groups, all of these different people, Jesus cried out on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So, because of their closed minds, they did not realize what they were doing, because they wanted to fit in with their particular group. 
So they crucified him. Yet the evidence was there to be seen. It was all there. If only they'd open their minds to it. As we're going to see as we move on just to look at some specific incidents. And the main the incidents we're going to focus in on here are to do with Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled here in Jesus. The first one being to do with the fact that Jesus died with two other men who Luke tells us, one on one side, one on the other, who were both criminals. Now you see, no doubt as far as the authorities were concerned, this was done simply to underline the fact that Jesus too was a criminal, that he was deserving of death. But what they seem not to realize as they were doing this is that they were fulfilling a prophecy of Isaiah given many, many centuries before. Isaiah 53 verse 12, which says, He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, the sinners. Here, these two criminals. Now you see, the Jews, they saw this prophecy as being about the servant of the Lord, as being the one who was expected to come and to suffer and to die for the sins of God's people. But you see, crucially for them, and this is where it all went wrong for them, was that the servant and the Messiah were two entirely different characters. One, the servant, was to suffer for the sin of God's people. The other, the Messiah, was to lead God's people into victory. And they couldn't contemplate the thought that their glorious Messiah might also suffer for sin. You see, the idea wouldn't even be able to register with them. They wouldn't be able to take in the fact that his victory might be a spiritual victory, much more significant than any physical victory they could think of. But you'd have thought that the penny would have dropped for somebody at least, and they'd have linked this prophecy with Jesus. You'd have thought it possible that, say, one of his disciples may at least be able to struggle through the fog towards this truth, that the two, the suffering servant and the Messiah, might be one and might be combined in Jesus. You would think it, you would hope it, but no one did. And so Jesus fulfilled that prophecy as he died symbolically in the midst of sinners between these two criminals because he died for the sake of sinners. Next we're told that the soldiers divided his clothes between them. And as again, as far as they were concerned, they were just following normal procedure. This was a normal custom. It was the custom at the time that the executioners shared out the victim's clothing and possessions between them. But you see, what these Romans didn't know is that in Psalm 22, 18, again written many centuries before Christ's coming, that it had been there foretold, they divide my garments and cast lots for my clothing. And this wasn't the only prophecy the soldiers fulfilled. For we're told later in verse 36 that the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now remember, these men were hard Roman soldiers who traveled the empire 
doing battle. They had no background in Judaism. They had no knowledge of God's word. And Jesus, he meant next to nothing to them. As far as they were concerned, this was just an amusing diversion that they would use to help to get them through a long, boring day. So in their ignorance, they had no idea that by doing what they were doing, they were actually fulfilling what's foretold in the Word of God. Psalm 69, 21. They gave me gall for my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. But it wasn't only the Romans, though, who, who mocked Jesus. For verse 35 tells us that the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Now here Luke only records that the people stood watching. That's all he says. But, but Mark, in his account, gives a little bit more information. When in Mark 15, 29, he informs us that those who passed by hurled insults at them. You see, it seems as if Luke is so ashamed of the actions of the ordinary men and women of Jerusalem in this crowd, they almost cannot bring himself to mention it. But the rulers of the people, though, they are shown to excel themselves in their cruelty as they sneer at the helpless, broken Jesus. Yet again, unaware, it would seem that they're fulfilling prophecy by doing it. They're so bitter and angry, they can't even think of it. Psalm 22, verse 17. People stare at me and gloat over me. But the ultimate irony, of course, is that this mockery is ultimately turned by in upon them. It is because Jesus is precisely who they say insultingly he is. He is God's Christ. He is God's chosen one who comes to save. Of course, as we said earlier, in a different sense to that which they understood and expected and therefore were open to, that is not a warrior. He was never that. Not someone coming to lead them to battle over their physical, this world enemies. But rather Jesus was a Messiah chosen to suffer and die in order to lead his people to the greatest victory of all, that spiritual victory over sin and death and Satan. And the final touch here is found in in the notice that was placed above Jesus' head. This is the King of the Jews. And John, in John 19, 20, he tells us that this was written, this sign, in all of the commonly used languages of the day. In order to ensure that that everyone there, from the simplest peasant, could understand it. It was written in Aramaic, the language spoken on a day-to-day basis by the ordinary Jew. It was written in Latin, the language of the Roman Empire. And it was written in Greek, the universal worldwide language of the time. Now you see here, Pilate, the Roman governor, is, he's taking his revenge here on those Jewish leaders. Those men who he felt had forced him, compelled him to crucify Jesus. 
He did this then for one purpose, one reason only, to embarrass them, to humiliate them. There's no evidence that he actually believed what was written here. And yet, though he was entirely unaware of the significance of what it was doing, how wonderfully true it was, how wonderfully it fitted into the purposes of God. That there at his death, his son could be spoken of and proclaimed in languages that every single person there would understand as the king, the king of the Jews, indeed the king of all mankind. You see, all the different groups involved in this terrible deed, they didn't really understand what they were doing. They didn't know what they were doing. The evidence was all there as to who Jesus was, what he was committed to do, but their minds were closed. They weren't open to take it in and blindly, unthinkingly, they just ran along with whatever crowd they were part of. And so they rejected their Messiah. They turned their back on the one given for them. They crucified God's Son. And I wonder how many people are there today who are doing very much the same kind of thing. People who just reject Jesus out of hand as a, a first century fairy tale. You know, who think that science has disproved God's existence. But they do it so often without even bothering to look at the evidence. They do it. Because it's what they're told. They say that, you know, people who believe in Jesus, we're just following what we're told. They're following what they're told. And they do it without looking at the evidence. I want to say, I challenge anyone, actually look at the evidence. And I would say look at it from all sides. If you're unsure about Jesus Christ tonight, look at pro-Christian scholars and look at Christian scientists and look at those who defend the faith and also look at those who attack the faith. Look at them all. Look at the evidence. We don't need to be afraid of that because I believe there is more than enough evidence to make a Christian faith a sound intellectual choice. I mean, there's always a need for faith. We don't deny that. There has to be because God wants us to make a loving choice to trust him. But you don't have to be a fool to close your mind off to be a Christian. Far from it. Open your mind and you'll see Jesus for who he is. But you know, for, for many people in the world, it's not so much that they reject Jesus. It is more that they just ignore him. Lots of people in the world today, like those Romans who executed him, it's not that they willfully turned their back on him. It's just that they haven't really given him that much thought. I mean, for lots of people in our society today, Christian faith is, is seen as being largely out of the picture. You know, and people have got at best a kind of vague, pick and mixed view of God. They kind of think, the average person, I think, from what it seems to me, they kind of think that there is a God, and, you know, he's out there, and he's, he's kind of part of everything that's going on, and that if you live a, a good life, well, it doesn't matter. You're going to be okay in some vague sort of way. That seems to be the average person's understanding. But you see, vague belief just doesn't cut it with God. God is some kind of shadowy, out there, maybe disconnected view of God. 
you know, a God who doesn't connect with real life, that just doesn't line up with what God actually says about himself in the Bible. It's just not true to it. That is that God is a God who's totally involved in and totally committed to the world that he's made and particularly committed to mankind who God sees as the masterpiece of his creation. Yes, and that God has given us a way to get into relationship with him and to get back into relationship with him, which is what we have to do because our sin, our rebellion, separates us from a holy God. And that this relationship is personal. The relationship God wants us to have is personal. It's not airy-fairy. And it's all about love and forgiveness. The love and forgiveness that Jesus bought for all mankind at the cross. Jesus stands at the very heart of it all. So how does all this kind of sit together? How does it fit together? Well, let me just use a wee story to try and illustrate this for you. It's a story about a man called Alvin Strait. It was actually made into a film, I don't know if any of you saw it, called The Strait Story. And it concerns something that this man did, true story, in 1994 at the age of 73 years. What happened was his brother, who was around 80, and who lived 300 miles from him, had had a stroke. Now you see, Alvin and his brother, they'd had a disagreement about 10 years previously, and hadn't said a word to one another, and he decided he wanted to put things right. He realised neither of them was getting any younger. We need to sort it out now. But he had a problem. His eyesight was too poor for him to have a driving licence. And there wasn't, in that part of America, or in many parts of America, there wasn't a real public transport option open to him that would take him to where he wanted to go. But you see, he did have a 1966 John Deere riding lawnmower with a top speed of five miles per hour. And what he did was, he attached a trailer to it, he put food, fuels, clothes and camping gear in it, and then he travelled in this tractor for six weeks to get to his brother. He unsurprisingly, I can imagine, managed to put things right with his brother, and his brother recovered and, and moved back to his family, which saved Alvin's lawnmower, I'm sure, a lot of wear and tear. But you see, my instinctive reaction to this is what a journey, and what a man, that he would do that to get right with his brother. But 100% we all say, don't we, that he did the right thing. Because people and relationships, especially key and important relationships in life, they matter that much. We need to get things right. But let me be clear. That journey is as nothing compared to the journey that God made. Compared to that journey that love compelled him to make in order to offer us forgiveness, in order to give us the opportunity to get back into relationship with him. For you see, when we were sinners, when we didn't know about God, and in all probability didn't care about God, when we were separated from him, because like all mankind, we've rebelled against God, we've chosen to go our own way rather than his. When we were separated from him because of that, facing nothing other than eternal judgment and eternal separation, God, because of love, 
because of his incredible love, God made a far greater journey. He made the journey from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. God became a man in Christ. And then to win us forgiveness, God in Christ died on that cross and he did it for us. There, God hung in our place as a man. There on that cross, as God, he paid the, the price for sin that we could never pay. His perfect life offered up for us. There he took our punishment. There he paid the price for us, for our sin, for the sin of all mankind, right throughout all human history. And as he cried out before that crowd there, representative of all, all mankind, gentle and Jew, agnostic, disinterested, all of them, as he cried out for them, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So today, Jesus cries out for our world, and he cries out for us. In all our weakness and sin, with all our faults and all our failings, Jesus cries out. And as it was then, so it is right now. No matter how great we might think the wrong we have done, no matter how badly we might feel that we've blown it in our life. Yet today, as we come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, as we come to God today confessing our sin, putting our faith in Christ with hearts full of love, asking Him to save us and wanting to serve Him, as we come in this way, we can know God's forgiveness right now as surely as any of those gathered round the cross on that dreadful yet wonderful day could have. God tonight is ready to answer Jesus' cries on our behalf. Father, forgive them. He's ready. If only we're ready to answer his call to faith. Let's pray together. Father, in that crowd gathered round the cross, we see represented the whole of humanity, the antagonistic, the disinterested, the fickle, but all of humanity gathered round that cross, Blind to what you had done for them. Blind to what you are offering them. But still Jesus could say, as he hung there, Father, forgive them. And tonight that same offer is here for each one of us. And Lord, you call to us by your Spirit to open our eyes, to open our hearts, to see what you have done and then to respond to what you've done in faith. Lord, it's not enough to go to church. It's not enough to occasionally say prayer. It's not enough to give money here and there. None of that is enough. There's only one way to get right with you, and that's by accepting your gift in Jesus. It's by admitting that we're sinners, and it's by taking hold of the life that you offer through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Lord, help us to respond to you. Help us to recognize you for who you are. And help us then to give our lives back to you in worship and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.